I wasn't really expecting to cry like a baby during worship, so thank you very much for the tissue. A lady behind me, like, gave me a tissue because I'm <laughs> weeping buckets. And so that was amazing because the goodness of God is running after us. Amen? Yes. Amen. There is, there is no better truth than that. He is a pursuant God who wants relationship with every single one of us in this room, regardless of circumstance. And I just love, thank you, worship team. That was amazing. And like, like Laura said, I am Julie Westfall. I fr I'm from Modesto. My, thank you. I feel like it needs a little bit more. Megan got so much more. I'm from Modesto. So Megan's right. You just have to say it high. And really, Modesto needs a shout out every once in a while, right? It's about three and a half hours away from here if you don't know where it is. And um, I just thought I would start out by showing you my family. So I brought a picture of my family. Because I thought it would be good for you guys to put some faces to the names I'm going to be talking about today or this weekend. So right over here, holding the baby on her hip, that is my oldest daughter, Cassie. She's here this weekend with me. And that her, <laughs> there, Cassie got a shout out. And then her husband is right next to her. His name is Steven. Steven's been around my family since he was 14. So I believe that I deserve a little credit in raising him. And... <laughs> Then they have two girls, um, Addison on her hip, and she's almost two, and Finley is three years old. So right next to Steven, that tall drink of water is my third. Her name is Natalie. She just graduated college and is living in Arizona. Next to Natalie is Baby Westfall. That's my fourth, and he um, just left for college. So this is my first year I'm an empty nester. And a lot of my, fam my friends love it, and I am having a hard time transitioning into it, but I believe that God has good things here for me. So right next to him is the love of my life. That's Tom, my husband. And one of you gals, I don't know who it was, he was walking around with my daughter, and they thought that he was my daughter's husband. That disgusted my daughter. <laughs> but it, it made, she said, oh, you look so young. And then my husband's like walking taller. Like, I look young, so thank you for whoever did that. You gave him a little boost this weekend. And then right next to me is my second born, that's Zach, and his wife, Emma. And in this picture, Emma is pregnant, and this is our newest grandbaby, Riley. I'm just letting you know, all my babies had sparse amounts of hair. I didn't even know this happened. She is born with a full head of hair. She'll have better hair than most of us by the time she's two. So I just wanted you guys to know my family and to know where most of my examples come from. But I've been really excited about this weekend. And I've been praying for it for a really long time. And the prayer that I've been praying is Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Do you know that that is a declaration? saying he will provide for you, but I shall not want. I will want only what God provides, right? It's a two-way street. God provides, and then it's my decision to want only what God provides. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. And that is what I'm asking for each and every one of you this weekend, that God would restore your soul. Because the thing about Hume Lake that is so special is that it is a place of pasture. God has used this place to take the hurting 
and the broken and the women that just need encouragement and the women to be reminded that they're still fun, right? Because those are those times. When you have small babies at home, you forget that you're fun. Guess what? Here you get to be reminded that you are still, in fact, fun. And so when we come up here, out of, up the mountain, God takes us and he allows us a place of pasture. He allows us to graze on his word. He feeds us with scripture. Did you know scripture is alive and active? It is working. Whenever we speak it, it is working. And then he gives us that th- times like that, that worship that we just don't get very often. And then he allows us to re- be refreshed. And guess what? He sends us home. He sends us home so that we can then go into our families and our communities and we can there then refresh the people around us. Because let me tell you, Jesus, he's contagious. He's contagious. And what he does for us, it, it, people need it and they, they want it. And that's what Hume Lake does for us. So my prayer has been that this would be a place that God gives us all a time of pasture. And this afternoon, Megan reminded me that I don't have to invite God here. God's already here. What we need to do is invite God to allow our hearts to be open to him. So I'm going to pray for us before I get into the talk. Dear Lord, I just pray right now that you would allow our hearts to be open to you, to the work you want to do to the things you want to work on. And I loved what someone said, that you would just be gentle about it, amen? That you would be gentle. And I love that your goodness is running after us. You're a pursuant God. And so I just pray right now that you would just allow this weekend to be a time of pasture, amen. So there's two books in the Bible named after women. Both of them in the Old Testament. One is about an Israelite woman who marries a Gentile king. And as queen, she saves her people from destruction. Her name is Esther. And the other one is about a Gentile woman who marries an Israelite man. And together, they, um, they, they have in their line the line of the Messiah. So in a way, both directly or indirectly, both women save their people from destruction. And since most of us in this room aren't Israelites, we're Gentile women grafted into the line of Christ, I figured that we could relate to Ruth. And so as I was praying about it, and the Lord was just asking the Lord, where should we camp this weekend? I just decided we're going to camp in the book of Ruth. So if you want, we'll be there all weekend long. So if you want to follow along, I'll be reading from that book, Ruth Chapter 1, 1 through 5. It says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malone and Kilion, and they were Ephraatites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went to the country of Moab and they remained there, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives, the name of one was Orpah, the, other, the name of the other, Ruth. 
They lived there about 10 years, and both Milan and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. So this story starts off tragic. This woman has lost everything. But what I love about the book of Ruth is that it's very real, and it's very raw, it's very transparent, and because of that, we can learn a lot. If you just even take the very first verse in the book of Ruth, you realize that it is packed with information. It says, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So this sto- the story um, starts out in a very dark period of Israel's history. It's a, it's a time after Joshua dies, but before they have, Israel has a king. And this is a 400 plus period of time, year period of time, called the Judges. There's a book, Judges, in the Bible that talks about this time. See, God had called Moses and he said, hey, I want you to deliver my people out of slavery, out of Egypt. And Moses does it. Goes to Egypt, he delivers them out of Egypt. And when Moses is getting ready to die, God gives him a succession plan. He says, I want you to pass the leadership baton to Joshua. And Moses does that. And then Joshua um, has his people, leads his people into the promised land, which is the land of Canaan. and, And he... He leads his people into the land, and not only is he a great leader, he's a great military leader, and he starts to drive out the Canaanites from the land because God had told him to do that. And when Joshua dies, guess what? There's no succession plan. In fact, God is strangely silent about who's going to take Joshua's place because in a perfect world, God was Israel's king, and Israel was to obey God. And unfortunately, that doesn't happen. And so after the death of Joshua, the tribes operated independently of each other. So there was no central leadership. There was no central government at the time. And when you open the book of Judges, when you first start reading Judges 1, it seems like it's working out. You see a few tribes, they go inquire of God, what should we do? Go and drive out the Canaanites, and they do it. But then there's some tribes that don't do that. Why? Because it's easier to stay in conquered land than to go out and do a new thing. Amen? And I'm just going to tell you, that last sentence preaches to me. Because it is easier in my life to stay in conquered places than to go out and do what God is calling me to do. It feels safer somehow. And yet God calls that disobedience. And that's exactly what happens to the Israelites. In Judges 2, 2 through 3, God says, I brought you out of Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. Why does he say that? Because he's a covenant-keeping God. He's a promise-keeping God, and he will never break his covenant. And he says, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides and their gods shall be a snare to you. And this is exactly what happens. Because God wanted them to drive out the Canaanites from the land because he knew that their gods, their idols, they were tangible. They could touch and feel them. They could smell them. They could see them. All of those things. And so he knew it would be a temptation for the Israelites to serve them. Because it's hard serving someone you can't see. Amen? 
faith is hard. It's work. It's a lot of work to have faith in a God you cannot see trusting him to do what is best for you. That is hard work. And so God knew it was going to be a temptation for them if they did not drive the the Canaanites out of the land. And the thing about God is that he partnered with them. He said, I want you to drive them out, but guess what? God was going before them. And now he says he's not going to do it. He's not going to do it. And because of that, the people became, um, uh, they oppressed them, and, and their gods became a snare to them. And the thing that God would allow is that the, he would allow the Canaanites to oppress the Israelites. So there's this cycle of sin that happens all throughout the book of Judges. It starts with Israel's sin. Israel sins. God allows oppression. And how did he allow oppression? By allowing the Canaanites, the very ones that they did not drive out, to come and oppress them. And the oppression would get so bad that Israel would repent and turn back to God. And then God would deliver Israel. And how he would deliver Israel is by raising up a judge. And don't think like a courtroom judge. It's not Judge Judy. It was a person that was a military leader that would allow them to go into battle and beat or fight their oppressor and conquer them. That's what God would would raise up. And then once they were delivered, there would be a time of peace. And when there was a time of peace, they would become self-sufficient again. And guess what? They would start to sin. And around and around and around the cycle it went. And that's what the whole book of Judges is really about. But the thing about it that you don't understand when you're reading it is that it wasn't just a circular cycle. If you turned that on a different plane, it was actually a spiral downward. Every time they went around that, they were spiraling downward, a descent into their own self-destruction. That's what was happening Until at last, at the last verse of the book, it says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everybody did what was right in his own eyes. They were not looking at God as the king, and everybody did what was right in their own eyes. It was not a good place to live. And at some point during this period of time, the time of the judges, this story of this little family is playing out. This is when Elimelech decides to take his wife and his two sons out of the promised land. And he does this because there's famine in the land. That is most likely in the oppression piece of the cycle because as the Canaanites would come oppress the people of Israel, they would take their food, creating a famine. And so Elimelech decides, well, this is hard. I want to go somewhere else to wait it out, to wait the famine out. So he decides to go to Moab, which happens to be an enemy of Israel. That's an interesting decision. But the thing about Moab, it's about 50 miles east of Bethlehem across the Jordan River. And the thing about Moab is that it was a fertile land. It looked abundant. It was great for livestock. I can understand why Elimelech picked that. But you have to understand that the Moabites were their enemies. And they started from an incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughters, in which his daughters decide to get their father drunk and and sleep with him so that they could 
perpetuate their family line because they saw no other way to perpetuate their family line. And from that union came Moab. And from Moab came the Moabite people. And these are the same people that hired Balaam. If you guys haven't read about Balaam and his donkey, it's a very, very interesting story. And so they hired Balaam to curse Israel. And because of this, in Deuteronomy 23, um, God said that the Moabites were not allowed in the assembly of the Lord. And he goes on and he said, because they did not meet you with food and water on your way out of Egypt. So out of Egypt, they probably reached out to help, uh, to ask for help from a distant cousin. That was Moab. And they said no. And not only that, in verse 5, it says, um, oh, verse 4, it says, And they hired Balaam to curse you. Yet the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam, and the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you. Amen. That's the kind of God we serve. He turns a curse into blessing for us. Why? It says, because the Lord your God loves you. He loves you. And then in verse 6, it says, you are not to seek peace or prosperity from them as long as you live. So Elimelech is taking his family to a place that God told him not to go. Do not go there. He's, he's seeking peace and prosperity in enemy territory because the promised land looked too hard. And guess what? It was hard. Because famine is hard. Scarcity is hard. I, you know, I don't blame Elimelech for looking around and, and seeing, thinking that he had to come up with a different solution. I, in fact, he makes me realize that I'm not in my, alone in my desire to run from what's hard. In my desire to take an easier path, to take control of my life when my life feels like it's out of control. But the thing about control is that it seems a lot easier than faith sometimes, right? When you're looking at your surroundings and all you see is scarcity, all you see is death or destruction, and you can't even fathom how things can get better. How, how could things possibly change? How could they be fixed or restored or healed? And it's important to remember that in these times, the enemy will beckon you to greener pastures. He will. To seemingly safer circumstances, to satisfaction, to fullness. He will tempt you with all of those things, but I'm here to tell you those things apart from God are lies. They only lead to greater grief. They only lead to greater grief outside of the will of God. And we see this with this little family. See, they're going to Moab to try to escape death, and guess what? They're actually running towards their own destruction. And, and the, after giving us insight into what time of history the story takes place, this verse, verse 1 goes on to tell us, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. See, there, this was only supposed to be a temporary fix. They were only supposed to sojourn there. My guess is that when he left, he was planning on returning. That was the plan. We have this extraordinary ability as human beings to justify whatever we want to do. We really do. And in this verse, we see that this temporary fix in verse 2 becomes a permanent home. It says... They went to the country of Moab and they remained there. That word remain stands out like a sore thumb 
in contrast to the word sojourn. And really, it's because it has roots, remain. It seems like it has roots. It's unmovable. In the original Hebrew, that word actually means to become or to exist. So Elimelech and his family left the promised land and they established themselves. They became Moab. That's, it was supposed to be temporary, but now it's permanent. They were no longer sojourning. And if you're in a period of scarcity or famine in your own life, whether it be physically or spiritually, I want you to caution you to be careful because where you sojourn can quickly become permanent. It can quickly become permanent. Those temporary jaunts outside of the will of God can, can become permanent. And the enemy will beckon you to greener, greener pastures. And remember, everything that the world has to offer, it will never satisfy no matter how abundant it seems. See, Moab seemed abundant. The promised land looked scarce, but it wasn't. That was a lie. And we have a desire to pretend as human beings that we're in control, whether you're a controlling person or not. I myself am a controlling person, but I just see it everywhere I go. And see, we know it's not true. That's an, it's an illusion, but we stay with it. And we see it all the time. We can't control whether we're going to have babies. Uh, but we think we can't. We think it's, it's birth control and timing until you have a baby that is either unplanned or you're sitting in a doctor's office and you find out you can't have a baby. You're very, very much aware at those two times that you do not control the womb. Amen? The same thing is true of our health our money, our work. And it's not to say that we're not good stewards of those things, but it's to remember that we are steward. We're not sovereign over those things. We're not. We could do everything right and things can happen because we're not in control. But the thing about us is when we come face to face with the fact that we're not in control, what would seem like we should just surrender and say, Lord, I'm not in control. That, that come, that's not very easy for us. So what we do is that we go, oh, I'm not in control of that situation. I'm going to take control of this situation. And I'll give you an example. My oldest daughter was young when my dad was diagnosed with cancer, and he was given a 3% chance of living. And at the exact same time, my um, sister's father-in-law was diagnosed with cancer. And my sister and I raised our babies together. So her in-laws are my in-laws, right? And so my daughter, was basically, this was her grandpa. It was her pop and her papa, and both of them had cancer. And that girl started praying. She just had a fire to pray. She prayed all the time, all the time, reminding us always to be praying for them. And guess what? My dad was healed. An amazing healing. It really was. But guess what? Papa was healed in heaven. And we don't know why. We don't know why my dad got to stay here on earth and God took Papa home. We don't know. And that's not something we're ever going to know. That's a why that we leave to God. But what happened was that my daughter was like, well, I prayed and it didn't happen. She realized she was out of control that she wasn't in control of the situation. So what did she do? 
instead of, and she's young at this point, she's not going to understand this, but as an adult, instead of saying, Lord, your will be done, help me to walk in trust with you. Help me to do that. What happened was she said, I'm going to stop praying. Why? Because that's a way she could take control. She realized she was out of control, so she took control in a different area. We do it all the time. We do it all the time. And the thing about life is it's a a series of choices to walk by faith, to either take control or walk by faith. But I'm going to let you know that there are times that there's physically nothing we can do except trust God. And in those times when we actually choose to trust him, we will grow in our faith. Why? Because faith takes surrender. It does. Faith takes surrender. And surrendering what we want for what God gives, it's probably one of the hardest things to do in our Christian walk. It is. It's hard to believe. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I shall not want. See, we can't control a person's choices, and many times we can't control what happens to us in life, but the one thing we can control is how we respond to it, because we always have the decision to respond in faith. It's always given to us. And this is where we find Naomi. She's alone. She's lost everything. She lives in a culture of patriarchy, which means that it's a male-dominated society and at Being a woman, she has very little rights. And she finds herself living at this time without the protection and provision of a man. That's a scary place to be. And to make matters worse, she's living in enemy territory outside of the promised land. And now she has two dependent daughters-in-law. She's not in an easy place. And at this point, she needs to make a choice. She can either continue to try to control her life or she can turn and trust the Lord's plan and go back to the promised land. And in verse 6, let's see what she decides. It says, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard that the fields of Moab, that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. Hallelujah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go return, each of you, to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant you that you might find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. So Naomi finally makes the choice to return. She has hit rock bottom, and she hears that the Lord has visited his people, and this is the deliverance part of that cycle we talked about, and that word visited actually means to attend to, and I love that because God saw to his people, he attended to them even when they were in sin. He attended to them, and he's doing the same thing with Naomi, but she has two Moabite daughters-in-law, and let me just tell you, she knows Being a Moabite in Israel isn't going to be easy. It's not going to be easy. And so she tells them, she urges them to stay. Go back to your mother's house. And she does this because she has nothing for them. She has nothing for them. A future tied to her look bleak. 
But both of her daughters-in-law say, no, 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 we want to go with you. And then she goes into another just time of trying to dissuade them. No, 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 you need to go back. She gives them many reasons that it would be detrimental to them. In verses 11 through 13, she says, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that, I, that may become your husbands? So all Naomi is seeing is what she can provide for them, and it isn't much. She wants them to stay. She says in verse 13 at the end, Know my daughters-in-law, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter for me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. She's expressing what their future would look like with her. And we're going to get into this idea of bitterness tomorrow, but tonight we're going to look at the benefit of repentance, that returning, that turning back. See, this first chapter has been all about the decisions of faith. Elimelech and Naomi decide that the promised land is too hard. The famine is too hard. They decide to take control and go to Moab. And then Elimelech dies. And guess what? Naomi decides to stay in Moab. And her two sons marry Moabite wives. And then her two sons die. And guess what? Naomi is now faced uh, with another choice, to stay or to return. She decides to return, but her daughter-in-laws now are, are, are faced with the same choice. Orpah decides to go back. She, she takes her mother-in-law's advice, but Ruth doesn't. Ruth does the opposite. opposite. She clings to her mother even though she's signing up for a, a life of scarcity. And isn't it interesting that Elimelech and Naomi were in scarcity and they left for abundance, and now we see Ruth living in abundance, and guess what? She's tying her life to scarcity. It's interesting. She's leaving abundance for scarcity. And she makes that trek back to Bethlehem. And the reason she does is because she makes the biggest faith choice any of us can, can make. And that's the choice for God. She chooses God. She chooses Yahweh, Israel's covenant God, over what she knows, over her family, over her future. And in the, de the day when judges rules, rule, when Israel keeps turning her back, on God and evil is running rampant, I think it's interesting that God chooses a Gentile woman, a Moabite, to show what true faith looks like. Amen? I love that. And her story then is told over and over and over for generations after generations after generations in the book of Ruth. So let's see what she says that is so impactful in verse 16. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. This is a covenant promise. It reads like a covenant in the New Testament, and it's because she's promising her mother-in-law that she will stay with her until death. That's quite a choice of faith. She is coming to know Israel's covenant God, 
And although Ruth's new faith allows her to make the choice to leave everything she knows, we also have to understand that there's different seasons of faith for all of us. There's different seasons of faith because Naomi, she's in a different season of faith. She is. She, her, her faith's been rocked by the storms of life. And even though she's returning to the promised land, she truly believes that the hand of the Lord is against her. That's where she is in her life, but the reality is that God sees her, that God has always seen her, and he knows what she needs, and his hand isn't against her. It's actually beckoning her home, and Naomi thinks it would be better for Ruth to stay in Moab, and the reason she thinks that is because Naomi can't see the future. She can only see one step in front of her, and, and she can only see what she can provide. But the reality is that God isn't bound by Naomi's provision. He's not. And he has a different plan because he sees the whole picture. He's not limited to one step in front of him like Naomi was. He is Jehovah Jireh, our great and mighty provider. And what he provides for Naomi and Ruth has nothing to do with Naomi and Ruth. Amen? Has nothing to do with them. A couple of weeks ago... Hmm. My mouth keeps getting really dry. A couple of weeks ago, I received a text from my nephew asking for prayer. And he and his wife live in San Francisco. Actually, his wife's right down here. And we as a family have been lifting them up in prayer because my nephew has been applying to grad school. And he applied to all of these grad schools, and then he, was, he got into them, and then he needed to know which one he should choose. So he, he asked the family, hey, pray for me. And so he chose one, and now he gets to move his family across country to New Jersey. And he's never lived anywhere outside of California. And so he then sends out another text, and he has bullet points of prayer requests. And each, each bullet point comes with a, a heading. And number three, the bullet point number three the heading is ambiguous and scary moving logistics. And I'm just going to tell you that I think moving logistics are always ambiguous and scary. Amen? I was like, there's no more appropriate title than that. And then he goes on in his text and he said, I once had a philosophy architecture professor who once employed a series of diagrams which included a label for the unknowable. And then he says, placed affectionately outside the scope of the chart itself. So we have this chart, this chart of the project. This is the scope of the project. And outside of the scope of the project is this unknowable category. And he's saying, this fits in that category. These, these ambiguous and scary moving logistics, they fit in the unknowable category. And then he said, our prayer is that God would reveal to us what we need to know. And I just sat there. I sat with that text for a long time because I'm going to tell you the truth. For me, I always want God, just tell me the unknowable. Show me the unknowable. And he's saying, Lord, show me what I need to know. Show me what I need to know. It's, it's very different. I'm fine with you knowing all of it. Show me the parts that I need to know. How many of us here tonight need to be reminded that God sees us in the ambiguous and scary parts of life? God sees us. He knows what you need. 
Those parts of life that are unknowable to you are known to him. They're known to him. And you are known to him. You aren't unknowable to God. He already knows you. Doesn't matter if you know him, he intimately knows you. And he knows what you need in those parts of life that are unknowable. And how many of you need to be reminded that he loves you and that he has plan and purpose for you? And even though he, it may seem like he's not bigger than your circumstances, he is. And not only is he bigger than your circumstances, he cares about the smallest detail, like ambiguous and scary moving logistics. Guess what? God cares about that. He cares about that. And when we want to know the unknowable, you know what we need to do? Surrender it to God. Surrender it to God and ask God to help us to only want and desire what he gives. Help me, Lord, to be content knowing what you want me to know. Help me, Lord. And so tonight... I want to have a time of surrender, and we're going to have the band come up. And I want to have this time of surrender because I believe that this is a time of pasture for us, but I also believe that we women, we like to hold on to the worries and the burdens of life, amen? And so when we came up that hill, those worries and those burdens came up with us. And tonight, guess what? You're going to lay them down. You're going to lay them down. They'll be, they'll be there for you when you go back down. I guarantee it. But for this weekend, you're going to lay it down because I don't want the enemy to steal what God has planned for you. And he has something good planned for you. See, Naomi stayed in Moab believing that it was the best thing for her family, and yet it cost her almost everything And the reason that I want to have this time of surrender tonight is because I believe that there are women tonight here that are holding so tight to something, so tight to something that they believe will satisfy them, that they believe will give them abundance, but guess what? It is destroying them. It is destroying you. And I believe that right now God is working in the hearts of some people here revealing to you that you need to let it go. You need to let it go. This is a time where we lay all that we have been holding on to before the throne of God. Our worries, our burdens, our insecurities, our independent hearts, the list goes on and on and on. We surrender those false beliefs. Those beliefs that say that God won't work or he can't work on your behalf, that's a false belief. Those beliefs that say that God is cruel and that he delights in your suffering, that's a false belief. Surrender those places, those areas that we believe that we need to take control in order to survive, that's a false belief. For some of you, it may be an intentional choice of faith to believe that God is bigger than your current circumstances. It looks impossible from your point of view. It really does. Your circumstances, you you don't know how they're gonna change, but guess what? God's not working with your provisions. He's not, and he has plan and purpose for you, and he is Jehovah Jireh, the great and mighty provider. 
For some of you, the choice to stand, you need to make the choice to stand up and return back to God. You've been in enemy territory for too long. And, and tonight is the night that you realize that you need to go back. You need to go back. And let me tell you, God is there waiting with open arms. No matter how many times we go back to him, he always is waiting with open arms. Amen? Amen. And so as the band comes, and we're, they're going to they're gonna sing a song. And I want us just to take this moment with open hands before the Lord. Whether you stand or sit or kneel or come here up at the altar, it's up to you. But this is between you and Jesus. If you want a group of your girlfriends to pray for you, go ahead and do it. This is your time. This is your time. But surrender those things to the Lord. He's going to do great and mighty things.